All right. If you have a, a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I already said that, but now here's the verse to turn to, Ephesians chapter 4. How many of you are familiar with Dr. Seuss? Some of the more spiritual people I see. You know, one of the most famous books and uh, the most purchased book in history around the time of graduation is a book, and you probably all know it, Oh, the Places You'll Go. How many of you know that book? All right. You can just relive all the memories right now. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. And you have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself and direct any way you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where you go. And you'll look up and down streets, look them over with care, and some you will say, I choose not to go there. With your head full of brains and your shoes full of feet, you'll start to go down not-so-good streets. And you'll find, and you may not find any you'll want to go down. In that case, of course, you'll head straight out of town. It's opener there in the wide open air. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsy as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew. Just do, excuse me, just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go. Tonight's message is entitled, Maturity, Life at the Big Table. And if you've read through this little book, it's a wonderful little book, it speaks about the adventure of life and how you're going to go through hard times and you're going to have some great times and you're going to have some slow times, but in the process, you're going to grow up and you're going to experience all of these things and it's perfectly normal that you do. In my house, as a young child, we had limited space. I grew up in a preacher's home. Not necessarily big, sprawling areas, preacher's home. But they're usually filled with a lot of kids. I don't know how God worked that out. Even in my house now, we have the exact number of people that I grew up with here again in the house that we live in Albuquerque. Well, we would have guests over a lot of times. Have people over after church, fellowship with friends, Christmas, Thanksgiving. And when this happened, we would overflow our table. And so mom would pull out a little table we called a card table, even though, you know, we didn't play cards. We were pastor's kids, and you're not supposed to play cards because it looks kind of like candy. But that's a whole other story. That's my only thing up. Please. Well, they pulled the card table out, a folding table, maybe, and they would set all the kids in the auxiliary room at the little table. And when you were little, didn't you like, how did you stay at the little table? Awesome. I love sitting at the little table when I was a kid because you could kind of cut up and there's lots of cooling. And if you spilled something, you know, no one really saw it really quick. And no one wanted to sit at the big table because you had to be quiet and you had to listen to the adults just yammer on. But as time went on and you came to that awkward point when you're like 12 or 13 and you're still sitting at the little table. <laughs> Mom, it's kind of getting embarrassing over here. Maturity is like the big table. Maturity is like finally coming to the point where I am now able to leave the things of a younger life and move on to the big table. Tonight we'll look at maturity, look at four facets, and the first facet is maturity, the great need. Let's read together in Ephesians chapter 4, and then we'll pray. Verse 11. And he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come 
to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plottings, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is a great privilege to be in your house, to be at the table in your family, where you feed us with your word, where you guide us and inspire us, convict us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us to a banqueting table, the big table. Lord, these passages of Scripture are full of eternity, full of life, conviction. And Lord, we need your Spirit to help us go through this and to gain insight and knowledge. Knowledge and insight, Lord, that will impact our lives. So Lord, once again, we call upon your great and heavenly name and we ask for mercy for our little brains for this one hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Water break. All right, let's look at verse 14. Now, I'm going to pre-warn you. I'm going to move around a lot, and we're going to start at verse 14, and then we'll go back to another verse, and we'll split it all around. But eventually, we're going to cover, cover them all. So those of you who are very linear and like to start at the top and go to the bottom, you may be a little challenged this evening. Verse 14, let's look at it. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. First thing we notice is maturity, the great need. Now, this verse implies the current state of the believers in Ephesus. And that is that it is implied that they should no longer be what they currently are. And that is, we can imply children based upon the text. We should be moving on. They should be leaving that particular point and moving on to a new status, leaving their current status. Now, the word that is used here is a unique Greek word, and it's napioi. It's an interesting word because it's not just the regular word, technion, which is used for children. But it is a word that is used for babies. That we should no longer be babies or babes in the words. Literally, it means an infant, one that is unable to talk. It doesn't say that it's unable to scream. But anyway, it's just one who's unable to talk. Now, figuratively and negatively, he's speaking to us by saying that these are immature adults, children, are inexperienced people. There's a few things that we need to note about children. First of all, children are simple, right? They're very simple. If they're hungry, they cry. If they're mad, they cry. If they're sleepy and grumpy, they cry. But they're very simple people. They're usually focused on their very basic needs. Simple, yes, but cute. I have a little son husband. In fact, he's watching tonight. And so he's listening to this. He's a little red-headed boy. He's four years old. And he's just fun to have a And I love telling stories about him. And because he's my kid and he paid for his birth and everything, I feel that I have a right to use him stories. I have intellectual rights in this family. Now, he's cute. And here's the difference between a small child and an adult. He's cute when we look outside the front door as he did last week and we bought him a new scooter for his birthday and he loves to ride back and forth, but he has a problem, and some of you may be related to this, but he has a problem keeping his hand pumped up. <laughs> and so I looked outside and so said, it's not that he went out the front door. And so I looked out the front and our neighbors were in the front yard and the people walking the dogs by late in the afternoon. And here comes Hudson, boom, right by on his scooter with no shoes, a pair of underwear, thank the Lord, and no shirt. 
crazy kid. But now imagine the father out front of the house. No shoes, no shirt, pair of underwear going by on a scooter. It's kind of a different, it kind of repulses you a little bit. It's the kind of thing people turn away from and go, oh, is he going? Cute, not cute. All right. Now, besides being simple and cute, they are vulnerable. And that is, notice this phrase here. He says, not that we should be children anymore, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. They are unable to withstand challenging circumstances. If you don't believe me, just go by a friend's house and pick up a two-year-old kid and take him to the mall. They are unable to withstand four hours at the mall like the normal person. I mean, you just see them. They just start flopping on the floor, crawling under stuff, crying, you know, faking a seizure or whatever it may be. They're just like, I, I, I can't hang. I can't do this. Now, dads, on the other hand, like myself, I've learned through time to be mature. I know where all the sporting goods stores are, the candy shops, and, of course, the food court. So I know how to survive. There's a contrast. But they're vulnerable. In fact, um, a small child cannot defend himself physically, even though they may try, even though they may throw things and hurt other kids. They can barely defend themselves physically. They can't feed themselves. They cannot work. Oh, however, there is an exception. If you're one of my kids, you work. That's, there's no child labor laws at my house. And a child cannot cope with strong emotion. He just can't handle it. They burst into tears over very seemingly insignificant things. But that's because he is a child, a small child. Example, their lives are like watching a tiny boat on an open sea in rough weather. Highs and lows, they pitch and roll, and they're ready to capsize and roll, ready to fall into a nap at any moment. That's the child. And that's his life. Highs and lows, ups and downs, tossed into and fro by anything that comes their way. And he says, we should no longer be as this. But it seems to be that this is the current status. They're unstable, I might say, and not dependable. Just give your three-year-old a job and see how well it gets done. In fact... We expect only what we know their ability to be with any given circumstance with our child. Correct. Let's look again at verse 14. He goes on to say that this is done by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful scheming. Not only are kids simple or vulnerable, but they're also very, very easy to deceive. Now, how are they deceived here? There are three interesting words here that I want you to pay attention to. And again, I, I pre-warn you, there may be copious amounts of Greek in this study, just to warn those of you who have an aversion to it. Okay, by the trickery of men, the word there is kubaya. And it literally means to throw the dice or to manipulate the dice. And it's not just a meaning a game of chance, but the idea is that, is that of the really slick player who has the good handle on, on, the, on the dice, who can take them and roll them just right. It's dice playing or sleight of hand. It's very cunning. It's very tricky, deceitful. And then there's the next word, which means treacherous deceitfulness with the idea that there is some intent to harm. And then we move on to the other word, is, which is methodion, which means a method, a method that is thought out full of deception. You see that these children are playing, if, if we might follow the example here, in very treacherous, very tricky waters, waters that are very dangerous. In this passage, we see the great need for maturity. Why? Because there is and are enemies of our faith 
wolves out there. It's sad to say, but our enemy doesn't play around. He'll pick on the weak, and he will destroy all that he can. Now, this is not just a psychological concept that we've held on to to explain all the bad things that happen in the world. This is a real enemy that we fight. I love what Paul said to the Ephesian elders earlier in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 29. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And Peter goes on to say in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Our enemy is real, and he is present, and he will destroy the weakest of us. We see our need for maturity because he is ruthless and he does not play fair. He will use the scheming plots of men. He will use false doctrine of false teachers. He will use our own selfish fleshly desires. And he will use anything possible to deceive us, to sidetrack us, and to move us out of the way. And I'm going to give you a picture of this. You ever watch those Wild Kingdom shows? Uh, The Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom, anybody back in the day? And he would always send Van out there to jump on the back of a rhino or something. But as they were always following the travels of the wildebeest, various carnivores would follow the trail of the wildebeest. And they wouldn't pick out the big wildebeest, but they always picked out the little ones. And as you watch them devour the calf, you think, that is so gross. This is the example of what we're looking at. And even further, something that we have to deal with on a daily basis here in America is the rash of child abductions in this country. It's a perfect example. I don't know about you, but I cringe every time I read the news and I see that another child has been abducted in front of their house or on their way home from school. And and what this means is that there are predators out there who are watching closely, watching their moves, watching where they're going, and at the right opportune moment, they jump them in, steal them, and destroy them. This is the idea that he's speaking about here. It's not just a simple little statement that says, well, be careful. There's a lot of weird things out there, and be sure that you don't follow like a, a ship that's tossed to and fro in the wind. No, there are deceivers out there who are ready and willing to harm the weakest of us. And that is why, my friend, we need maturity. Now, you may think, you know, in our country, we love youth, don't we? Youthfulness, everybody goes to the gym, everybody's working on their skin, how they look, you know, when you turn 40 or whatever, you get the cool car. Why? Because you want to look older? No, because you want to look cool and younger. Because all the young folks usually drive the cool cars. That's just the way it goes. I mean, it's basically practical because you can't um, put six kids in a Corvette. It just And you just don't look cool in a minivan. It's just the way that it goes. But we need maturity. All right. Our second point, maturity. What is it? We'll give it a definition. Look at verse 13. He says, remember we're we're starting here at 14, now we're going back up top. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Let's look at this phrase, the perfect man. The Greek phrase here is eis andra. And what that 
specifically means is it can be translated as perfect, but really it's an old King James word. In fact, it, it literally means a man of complete maturity, and I think the NASB translates it very well when it says to a mature man. Uh, it is the exact opposite of the description of the child in verse 14. The Greek word there, teleos, is used 19 times in the New Testament, and the root expresses an important Greek concept, and that is this. It is the end of a goal. The thought is that if a mature individual has reached the goal of the process of growth as a person. It's not just the idea of being perfect. I remember growing up as a kid reading the King James Bible. I don't know what they did that small kids back then, but it was just a harsher climate religiously in America. But I remember reading about these verses that talk about love being perfected and how that you should be perfect even as he is perfect. And you'd read these stages of being a perfect man, and I thought, look, I'm eight years old. I'm bad as it is. I have no chance of becoming a perfect man if I'm starting out this bad at a young age. But it's a misnomer. It's, it's an archaism. It would be better translated maturity or coming to the point of completeness. The idea is that, you know, when it says that love has been perfected in us, not that God, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. The idea is that it starts at one point and it begins to travel, say the love of God, and it hits a person. But when that person loves him back and it's returned, the, the completion of that love has come in. The idea is completion maturity, the growth, and the process. Now, this word implies growth and process as a goal. Question to you, parents. What is your goal or desire for your children? I'll bet it has something to do with growing to mature adulthood, people who are able to handle life and to handle life successfully. Isn't that what you hear about parents? I mean, I do. You know, I, I always tell the kids when they leave the house, okay, comb your hair. Just put just a little bit of gel down right there. Now, when you go up to someone, say hello, stick your hand out, and look right in the eyes and say, how are you doing? Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. But you're trying to prepare them for a life ahead of them, and, and there's growth in that process. So based upon this word and the definition of this word, perfect or mature, we can imply that maturity is defined in Scripture, let's pay attention here, is that completion of the growth process whereby we are now able to say that a person has passed from childhood to adulthood. That's the definition. They've gone through the process whereby now we can say they're no longer a child, but now they are an adult. Now this by no way implies that the growth stops or you stop learning. No. In fact, once you reach adulthood, that's really where you get your schooling, isn't it? The 12 years in from grade school through high school is nothing compared to the day that you get the little thing that comes over the side, they turn it over, you head out the door, you throw it up in the air, Think about going to a party, you wake up the next day, and your parents say, So, have you looked through the papers for a job? <laughs> or you can attend university, whichever one you choose, but you're leaving the house in, I don't know, 24 hours? Good. <laughs> now, you may not be completely mature at that point, but if something has happened, whether you've gone from childhood to I don't know what's next. I'm moving into maturity. It's like the day that you're finally asked to be sitting at the big table. Now, here's a question we have to ask. Who started this whole process of maturity? Now, who started this? Is it us? Because I know myself, and most of the men I know, I won't speak for you women, men, given half a chance, would never mature. Now, when you go watch Peter Pan, and, and the women, you think, oh, that's such a cute story. And the men kind of look like, oh, that's just so childish. Inside, their hearts beating like, man, if I could just 
We don't naturally stand up and say, hey, I want to mature. I think it's time. I never did. This process of maturity comes by force from someone else, like your mom or your dad. And in our case, in this passage, it comes from the Lord. Okay, we start at verse uh, 14. We hit verse um, 13. Now let's go to verse 11. Verse 11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice that first phrase, he himself, or literally, he gave. He himself gave. The phrase there in Greek is utas edokin. And I know that probably really blessed you, but this is what it means. It's a very important word. It means literally, he gave. But this is very important, and I'll tell you why. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 15, actually all the words were 11 through 16, in Greek it is one sentence. Now, for English grammar, that makes very bad grammar. I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to run-on sentiments. However, it's fantastic Greek. And there is something else you need to know. That in each Greek sentence, there is what we call one, or hopefully, one finite verb. And that it's, it's not an adverb. It has nothing to do with being a noun. It's not a participle. It's not a subjunctive verb, which, which uh, modifies the verb. But it is a baseline, finite verb from which everything else in that sentence hangs on it. And this is right at the top, and it says, He gave. And the rest of what comes after that in those verses hangs on that passage. It hangs on the thought that He gave all of these things. So what did He give? First of all, He gave, or what or whom? He gave pastors and teachers. Then it asks, begs the next question. Well, why did he do that? Well, good answer. Good question. Here's the answer. For the equipping of the saints. Well, what for? For the work of the ministry. Well, what's that? It's the edifying of the body of Christ. And you could ask another question. For what purpose? And he goes on to say, till we all come to the unity of the faith and connected together here, the knowledge of the Son of God. The idea is, is that he in this passage has given us a He didn't just come along and say, all right, you people here on earth, I'm getting tired of you. I don't know if you know about Judgment Day, but it's not going to be pretty. And so you better straighten up, and you better start doing right, and you better, and you better, and you better. Well, we would be lost. We're in trouble. Without his intervention, without his unique power and ability to step in and to give to us something that we couldn't have on our own. Ducks in the water. Now, this process of maturity, we need to note this first of all, begins with Him. It is God. Now, let's look at the nature or the quality of this maturity. Let's go back to verse 13. He says, Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice the phrase here, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That's kind of a, a unique phrase, but it gives us a lot of hope because it's connected right to the mature man, that word that is used there. Now, three words here are noted, and we want to pay close attention, those of you who are taking notes. The phrase here, to the measure, is ice petron, metron, and it can be used of a term or a measuring stick or something that you would measure something by, but it can also be used as a standard. Not only a standard of measurement, but a standard in which to live by. The next word here is of the stature, and it is a word that literally means of mature age or adulthood. Not just physical stature, although it can mean that, but it can mean it in this particular context 
adulthood or mature age. And then finally, the fullness of Christ. To pleromatos. And pleromatos is a word that is, um, it comes from the word pleroma, which means fullness. But it not only means fullness, but it means fullness in the sense that it is complete, the total sum, lacking absolutely not one thing. And it's in the genitive case, which means that it is possessive of Christ. That we may grow up into the complete fullness of Christ. In fact, if we were going to make our own translation of this, we could say it this way. To the standard of adulthood of the completeness or extensiveness or comprehensiveness or the breadth of Christ. In essence, the kind of maturity spoken of here reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Nothing less, nothing more. Not some odd standard to world gives us, but it is a real standard, real time, from God himself in human flesh. He says, if you want to know what full maturity looks like, look directly to Jesus. Do not pass go, but go directly to Jesus himself. That is the character that we want to emulate. Now we take our cues from him. First of all, we take our cues from his demeanor. A great way to do that. If you're not familiar with the life of Jesus, is to take your Bible at home and begin to read in the Gospel of John and then go back to Matthew and to Mark and to Luke and do that all throughout the summer and then even on into the book of Acts. And as you read through these chapters, you will find that the image of who Jesus was in his very nature and character, not only the words that he spoke, but his very demeanor, the way that he carried himself and presented himself around others will begin to emerge on the page. His teachings are the fullness of himself. His miracles, his love, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's all about Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 4 says this, Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it unto you. That's what it means. Real maturity reflects the character and nature of Jesus. And not just a little bit, and not in the areas that we can compromise and do, but in the fullness of all that he is. Now, if you're thinking that this is impossible, well, good thinking. Because with man, these things are impossible, but I'll save the answer to the very end so you can't leave. Okay, we move on to our third point. Maturity, real love. Let's look at verse 15. In fact, we'll back up just a little bit to verse 14 to bring in a contrast. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, a word of contrast here, speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things unto him who is the head, Christ. Here's the contrast. You have lying deceitfulness, taking advantage of little children. Contrast, speaking the truth in love, growing up, to him who is the head. Now, there's an interesting phrase here. Again, I'm sorry I'm going to bring up the Greek again, but it's a participle. And it's a unique present participle related to eletheia, which is truth, which basically it's hard to translate because here it states that it's speaking the truth, but that really doesn't mean it. It's, it's good Greek, bad English, but what I'm about to tell you, so hold on to your hat. Literally, it means truthing in love. Truthing. How do you truth? I don't know. You just put an I-N-G on it. Truthing. Or doing the truth. Or honoring the truth. Or living by the truth in such a way. But truthing in love. As opposed to deception, here we go. Not only speaking or talking in love, but the idea is living the truth. As a contrast to false teachers, real love and maturity cannot exist apart from the truth. I'm sorry. 
Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in order for maturity to take hold, there must be an atmosphere of truthing and love present. There should be in our lives, as a, as a, as a mode of operation, constantly seeking after the truth. In fact, we are told about the time of the Antichrist over in Thessalonians. That he sits upon the earth a strong allegiance because the people at that time did not seek out the truth. So they were sent a strong delusion. There must be a sense in our lives that we're willing to hear the truth, how good, bad, or ugly, how bare it may be. I'm ready to hear it. Let it fly. But here's the caveat. We need to be willing to hear the truth about God, about ourselves, about others, my sin, your sin, His Word, this world. But truth works best, my friend. We could say that it has a main ingredient. And that main ingredient is love. Truth only works best within the confines of love. Because there are some of you out there who are very confrontational, and I won't name any names, that you know who you are. That would love to just find something out bad about someone. Well, I'm just going to go, you know, confront them. That's what they need. The scripture says you need to confront them. And you just need to go tell them the truth. Let's just go get it over with real quick. And I'm just going to sit them down and I'm going to clean their flower. That's why we would say it back home. But you notice when you do things like that, people have a tendency to completely reject everything that you're saying. So much so that they'll never call you on the phone again. And your list of friends begin to dwindle down to a very small group. Why? Because though your statement may have been true, without the presence of love, it stings, it mars, and it doesn't accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. Real love. Truth works best within the confines of love. A perfect example of this is the book of 1 Corinthians. If you'd like to, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look at verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is... Knowledge, it will vanish away, for we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Wow, how powerful a statement. I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Look at this little phrase again here. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. What's the word there for perfect again? Hmm. Technion. Or, or, excuse me, not technion. Uh, teleon. Or teleos. Which is maturity or completeness. You know, for many years, this passage has, has been used by um, two basic camps. One camp to say that this is speaking of um, the full canon of Scripture, and it's typically used by folks who are uncomfortable with tongues and prophecies and other things like this and say, when the perfect has come, all of this other stuff will be done away with. Here's the problem with that statement, though. And by the way, I'm stealing this from one of my professors, Dr. Collins, so in case you're listening, uh, you're getting the credit for this. Okay. It, in this passage, speaks to nothing of the full canon of Scripture. It doesn't at all. In fact, it's a parenthetical statement, this whole verse 13, right in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14, where you have 
a, a beautiful description of the gifts of the Spirit and, and the workings of, of the Spirit in the body of Christ. But here's the problem. The, the body of Christ in Corinth was carnal, and they got each other's nerves, and they were fleshly, and they did a lot of rotten things. In fact, if any church in that part of the world needed to grow up, it was these guys when that maturity has come. Now, the other is used to say, the other um, interpretation of this passage says that perfect is the return of Jesus Christ. And the problem with that is that the passage here and the passages surrounding it have nothing to do with that. It's better understood saying that when I was a kid, I acted like a kid. But when that which is perfect or maturity comes in, then all of this junk is done away with. And I'm able to see love for what it is in truth, caring for one another, purely loving and knowing as I am loved. Maturity. Okay, finally, our fourth point, maturity growing up. Let's look in verse 15 back in Ephesians chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ. May grow up into him. Literally in the Greek, it means to grow up. Sorry, that's what it means. And if there's anything that the church in America needs today, it is to grow up. To grow up, people, become what we're supposed to be, to complete the task that was started by the Lord, to become mature. We have a lot of fancies. We have a lot of great resources. We have a lot of conferences to go to. But my friends, all of it becomes worthless. It becomes a sounding brass or or sounding cymbal. It becomes worthless if it isn't bathed in love and maturity. Now I'm going to give you a couple of visions of maturity or immaturity. And please forgive me if this offends you. If you happen to be a type of a person who... in a while after you've read everything that you can read and can stomach no more, you start clicking through the channels. I have a real problem with it. I think I even have some kind of carpal tunnel syndrome in my thumb. My wife was just like, give me that thing. crazy. But I just think I become spastic. And as you're going through, I've never said and watched this whole thing, but for a brief few moments that I've Stopped by. I think that the Jerry Springer show is the grossest thing I've ever seen anywhere. And it perfectly depicts, amen. It perfectly depicts immaturity. It's like the complete opposite of, of maturity, love, bearing with one another, caring for one another. All it is is hatred, violence, bad language. Foul mouths, selfishness, and, and to boot, it, it's placed on display. It's like taking advantage of the worst. But you know what, guys? Sometimes my living room with the kids kind of looks like that. <laughs> Finally, mom or dad comes in and they're like, Would you stop doing that? You go to your room, you go to your room, you hit yourself on the way because I don't have time, and then you just go to your room. <laughs> And you older ones make the young ones feel guilty about it. And I'll see you in the morning. We had a story that uh, kind of brings us to focus. I like to make up stories for my kids. And uh, they usually deal with some type of moral issue. Well, there came a point one day, and I was getting ready for church on a Sunday morning because we were back in house, and we had Natty and Emily, and they were both very young, very cute, but they had these little pacifiers. And they were called Nooks. Parents, you know any of those? The NUK. And so we would we had weaned them to the point where we would give them to them at night, and so we called them their night nights. 
I know, please bear with me, it's one of those parents words. Okay, but um, one morning we're getting ready for church, they're eating their cereal, their cereal was set in front of them, and they're both sitting at the table like this. took them with me, and I opened up the trash can, and threw them in the trash, and they burst into tears, and I said, that's good enough for you, I'm going to church. Now, needless to say, probably wasn't a very good sermon that morning. Well, pastor, can we pray for you? You seem to be a little, I don't know, tense. Well, we got back home, and it was kind of a wintry, snowy day, and so we got up in the bed, and, and I said, hey, I, I want to tell you guys a story. And so I invented the story of a kid by the name of Tommy Tannock, who had a problem getting rid of his, you know what, the nine And he was a little boy, he always had it in his mouth, but he would never let it go, and he would never let anyone take it from him, not his mom, not his parents, not the police, not anyone, he would always run off. But here's the thing, Tommy Tannock, though he would hang on to this thing and his teeth would rot and the side of his mouth would rot and his hygiene would go in the toilet. He didn't grow. He didn't grow. Now, he was not to be confused with someone who may have a genetic disposal to not growing very tall. He remained a baby his whole life. But he became kind of a weird baby because he grew a beard. <laughs> and, he, and he became really fast and, and had kind of adult kind of diapers. And that as he remained and he hung on to his, his diet, all of his friends would grow up and they started playing basketball and going to school. And uh, eventually one day, you know, one of his friends drove by and they had a car full of kids and they looked over and they saw this really fast, weird kind of bearded guy go by and they said, who's that? I think, it, is that, who is that Tommy Tannock? And the moral of the story is that Tommy Tannock never grows up because he's not willing to let go of something. And for us, my friends, maturity is measured by behavior. Look with me over in Galatians chapter 5, and we'll close soon. Verse 19, we see the example of bad behavior. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I've told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is bad behavior on display. Immaturity. But look at the contrast in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And in fact, friends, as we read this list of the fruit of the Spirit, we might say the fruit of the Spirit, and then we put an equal sign, mature. Because you wrap all that up together, and what does it point to? Maturity. God wants us to grow up and that our fruit may remain and it may dwell and that we live lives not full of chaos, fighting, warring against one another, but peaceful, loving lives of encouragement and joy. Could you ask for something better? Absolutely not. Okay, how do we do this? Well, good. I'm glad you asked. It's a good question, and here's a good answer. Look with me at the first verse, chapter 5, verse 16. This is the how-to. I say then, walk by the Spirit. This is in the imperative voice. It only doesn't mean just walk. It means have your being, your way of life by the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that they do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. 
being led by the Spirit. That's how you do it. Bending your ear to God, listening to God, doing what He says, and obeying Him. It's the only way. There's an old hymn that we used to sing, Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I'd like to close with just a final few words from Oh, the Places You'll Go. Dr. Seuss goes on to say, But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though your enemies prowl. On you will go through the hack and cracks howl. Onward, up many, a frightening creek. Though your arms may get sore, your sneakers may leak. And on and on you will hike, and I know you will hike far. And face up to your problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course. As you already know, you'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure when you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft and never mix up your right foot with your left. And will you succeed? Yes, you will indeed. 98 and three-quarter percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. So, be your name, Boxbaum or Bixby or Bay, or Mordecai, Alley, Van Allen, O'Shea. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So, get on your way and grow up. Oh, the places we're going to go with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love that you so readily bathe us with acceptance and peace. And Lord, we need you. This great task of maturity is not something that we conform to very easily. But Lord, I know that my brothers and sisters, along with myself, are enticed by these words that we can grow and become like you to the fullness that belongs to you. Make us those kind of people, Lord, able to bear your name by your grace and by your spirit. In Jesus' name.